0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Stephen Heller about his attitude when he was a young designer. Uh, I was short-sighted. I was arrogant. I had a sense of myself that was disproportionate to all reality. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: A season of Design Matters simply wouldn't feel complete without an appearance by Stephen Heller. He's not just a celebrated designer and art director. He's also a brilliantly prolific writer of books, columns, blogs, you name it. Steve has been on the podcast pretty much every year since we started 12 years ago, and we never run out of things to talk about. This year, we're going to focus on one of his latest books, Graphic Design Rants and Raves, Ball Mots on persuasion, entertainment, education, culture, and practice. It's an anthology of essays Steve has written about everything from Paul Rand to the fateful election of 2016. Steve, it's always a pleasure to see you in that chair. Welcome once again to Design Matters.
0: It's great to be here talking about bone mots.
1: <laughs> I have such difficulty with certain phrases and words. I don't know what it is, but long-time listeners of the show recognize that about my abilities. But let's talk about this title. In the first pages of your introduction, you state that the terms rants and raves suggest that the essays in this book are more subjective and personal than objective history and reportage. And you go on to say that it's partly true. So why only partly?
0: Well, some of the essays were done as reportage. And because of the vehicles that I was publishing in, Uh, Some of them are more fact-checked than others.
1: Ah, so you're relying on your editors to keep you honest?
0: Yeah, in some cases I'm totally dishonest. (laughs) But, you know, who knew that it would be in vogue?
1: Ah, yes, alternative facts. You go on to state that you're not always clear about what is a rave and what is a rant. Why not?
0: Well, because some things that I write about, I have different opinions about over time so when a book is being put together there's a lag time between writing publication and then again rereading it so uh, my rants can turn to raves my raves can turn to rants Uh, they're both R words
1: looking back on the vast amount of writing that you've done can you pinpoint a period in time where something you wrote was either a rant or a rave, and later, after a certain amount of time had passed, you realized that the rant or rave was unfounded and you felt differently about what you had previously written about?
0: Well, the thing that I I guess I became most known for or most notorious for, was The Cult, the Cult of, of, of the, the Ugly.
1: ugly. <laughs> yes,
0: And it still pops up. Students still read it. I still get emails about it. When I reread it, I find it's embarrassing. Why? Uh, because I was very sanctimonious in, in many ways. I think I triggered a conversation, but I wouldn't have been as uh, raw as I was. I wouldn't have been... As critical as I was at that time. I was trying to make a point, and I think part of the point was to get a conversation going, but I also started to believe what I was arguing about and against. So it it was an interesting exercise. It was an exercise of trying to bring together a particular period of time of design and typography, explain it, criticize it, and then move on to something else. But it took on a life of its own.
1: So this is a piece that you wrote, I believe it was in the early 90s. Is that right? Yeah. And it was at a time when technology had infiltrated the way designers were working, and suddenly rules that had been followed for millennia were no longer being followed. Typography was being deconstructed in ways that we hadn't seen maybe ever, and you wrote a piece talking about the ugliness of this new way of working and the new way of communicating, and I actually think, Steve, that had you not written that article, I don't know that that particular moment in time would have been so carefully considered in the way that it has. It really was the, the article that opened the door to this type of discourse and dialogue.
0: Well, it was one of those things that you couldn't have predicted. Uh, there are things that I've written where either I predicted or someone else predicted that it would cause a problem.
1: And then it had or hadn't?
0: And then it had. Uh, I won't even go into a couple of them because they're really embarrassing. But this, I figured, would just you know, go under the radar. It happened to be in i Magazine. A lot of people were reading i at the time. It was edited by Ed, uh, Rick Pointer at the time. Rick made some editorial adjustments, but nothing radical. Rick was a supporter of this so-called new typography. Uh, so, it never occurred to me that there would be uh, outrage and uh, anger after it published. And it turned out that uh, it was um, a a a turning point in terms of the so-called design discourse, which doesn't really exist anymore.
1: Well, the notion of design criticism has greatly changed in the last 30 years. And you write about how back in the 70s and 80s, there was a gentleman's agreement not to portray work in negatives. And Backpatting was de rigueur, and few designers really and truly wanted critical journalism that would tackle graphic design in the same manner common to books, film, theater, and architecture.
0: Why was that the case? Well, it was the case because we were a service. We were serving clients. There was no infrastructure for the kind of criticism that was journalistic. We were a trade, and trade magazines basically ruled the roost. So if you were going to show something, you were going to show the best of something. If you were going to show the worst of something, it was clearly marked, this is bad, don't do it. Mm. As opposed to, this has flaws, and these are the intellectual reasons or the philosophical reasons why they're flawed. Uh, We just hadn't reached that level of sophistication. Massimo Vignelli had said, uh, in order for the profession to really become a legitimate profession, it required a certain amount of critical discourse and critical thinking. And I think that was one of the buttons that was pushed to change things around.
1: Was The Cult of the Ugly your first rant?
0: No, I ranted before. I, I had written a lot about illustration and cartooning and politics. So I was used to ranting about political things through the lens of caricature and cartoon. But it was pretty much the first time that I stepped out of the arena of showcasing uh, contemporary work or recording historical work.
1: As you started writing more critically, you describe how you learned that many thin-skinned designers only favored design criticism when it was not about their work. And few acquaintances turned a cold shoulder to you because of the opinions you wrote about and shared. Any particular anecdotes come to mind about who turned that cold shoulder?
0: There are a few who will remain nameless. But first of all, humor is always when somebody else slips on the banana peel. And that's what it was with this. You know, there's a certain schadenfreude. uh, When you're talking about somebody else in critical terms, you're not in the firing line. Someone else is. You may agree with it and you like that. You take pleasure in that person's pain. I started doing a column in print magazine called The Cold Eye. Martin Fox, who was the editor at the time, came up with that title Uh, And I was pretty much the only cold ire for a couple of years. And I remember writing something about uh, a magazine, a very popular magazine. I think it was called Rolling Stone. Mm, And the design had changed considerably from one art director to another. And I took it to task in the sense that I talked about the shift in perspective, the shift in typographical palette, uh, the use of photography had changed. And the person who was doing it was someone I knew and respected. So it wasn't a personal attack. It was just looking at the magazine from a critical perspective. Well, I ran into said person at society of publication design event and i said hope everything is great and you know hope you're good and the person said why should you care and because of the long lead time of the article i had even forgotten i wrote it so i i learned pretty quick that there were hurt feelings and fact is, you know, some people are snarky and they enjoy being snarky and I don't enjoy hurting people.
1: There does seem to be a culture of snark to a degree that I haven't seen in a long time and in places that I never expected. I've been reading quite a lot of snark in the New York Times, which is a newspaper I would not have expected to be as snarky as it is, especially the book reviews. They've become almost gleefully mean. And I often think about being the person who's slipping on the banana peel, and I know how much work goes into writing a book. And sometimes I read these reviews, and I'm I'm heartbroken for the person who's written the book that they're reviewing because there is just so much joy in the exploration of just how bad this particular
0: book is. But that's part of the cultural gestalt. People put things out. We we live in a society where you take chances intellectually. And a place like the book review or theater review, you're doing it for two reasons. You're doing it to make a point about the cultural ramifications of the work And you're also doing it as a consumer service. And there's a difference between a review and a critical analysis. And if you go back in history, you'll see these arguments. I mean, there was that great film about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, you know, at each other's throats, hated each other's work. And there was a political agenda, there was a social agenda. So I that's find not
1: unlike Tibor Kellman and Joe Duffy,
0: exactly. And I, I actually reposted that debate today. You did? Yeah. Oh wow, it,
1: <laughs> I didn't see that.
0: And that's kind of amazing. It was an interesting time because people stepped out of their comfort zones, and it, it, the debates were kind of. Uh, it was kind of like a stealth attack these attacks would come under the radar because nobody expected your colleague to say something ill about your your work.
1: But that's a debate, and that's fair in a debate because somebody can then have a point and a counterpoint. When it's a review and it's that vitriolic and it's that negative, it leaves the other potential point of view unsaid.
0: No, because the other person can have their day in court as well and respond. I mean, I remember at the book review, since I was there for almost 30 years, I remember Norman Mailer, one of his last books, was reviewed very harshly, and I forget by who. But I remember him coming up to the office, and at that point he could barely walk, and he just stormed into the editor's office and said he wanted his day in court. And he got a full back page to refute the review that was done. And it was so exciting. I mean, here's one of the greatest writers in the United States, if not the world, making egotistical response to something that he should have been used to. I mean, he got good reviews, he got bad reviews. Uh, But he wanted to be able to have his last word. Or at least semi last word.
1: You don't think that that ends up looking overly defensive?
0: No, I think it's part of the game, and I think a lot of this is a game. It's not a just playtime, but I think you you build a, a kind of canon based on the arguments that you have. Somebody rises to the top of a pile of of intellectuals or talented people or artists and once you get to the top you're exposed to a lot of criticism and your work is not going to be 100% wonderful 100% of the time. So it's at that point that you have to brace yourself for people criticizing you and and that criticism can come because of any number of agenda Uh, and Today, of course, we're in a political age, so a lot of it has to do with politics. Whenever I do a political blog item on the Daily Heller, invariably I get letters saying, why don't you just shut up and stick to design? But
1: that is design. I guess it's... Some people don't believe that. Well, you organize Rants and Raves into four categories. Graphic design is power. Graphic design sometimes triggers change. Graphic design as visual dialect. And graphic design as cultural memory. So I want to talk about some of the articles in those sections. In the chapter, Type as Agent of Power, you state that typefaces are the incisors of language. And you go on to quote Marshall McLuhan, who stated, typography created a medium in which it was possible to speak out loud and bold to the world itself. Type created boldness of expression. And, Steve, I can certainly see how type influences boldness of expression, but how do you think that type created boldness of expression?
0: Depending on the typeface that you use, you're making a statement. And that statement is an amplification of what your feelings are. It is your voice. And my voice can be like this, or my voice could be like this, and... That influences what the content of what I'm saying is. I mean, I could be very soft-spoken and be very cutting, but the fact of the matter is, if I'm soft-spoken and cutting, it could get lost. And I think type is one of those things that you either use it neutrally, it becomes that thing that just conveys the words, or it's that thing, that tool that amplifies uh, your feeling within those sentences, within those paragraphs and pages.
1: There are a lot of provocations in rants and raves, and you declare that all type wields power, but go on to tell us this— The majority of typefaces in the world are neutral. They communicate ideas from all quarters, left, right, and center, sometimes all at once. Typography is, after all, a crystal goblet, void of intrinsic ideology. This was really fascinating to me, and I couldn't help but think that it seemed a little bit of a stretch to think that certain typographic styles suggest certain ideologies, even if it's just an onomatopoeia.
0: Certain typefaces are imbued with certain powers, just as logos are not inherently good or bad. I mean, there there are bad-looking logos and there are good-looking logos, but for a logo to be good or bad, it has to represent something that's good or that's bad. That's good or bad, and it's the same with a typeface. When I talk about and I've written about it in other books, black letter uh, Fractor, Fraktur, that's I th- what I was thinking about. I think about. of you know nationalism in in the Third Reich, and I think of also even prior to the Third Reich this kind of ecclesiastical dogmatism. Uh, it is, of course, the typeface that Gutenberg created for his Minds Bible. Now, depending on where you sit in the religious spectrum, it could either be the beginning of a dogmatic world, religious world, or it could be something that you equate to that world and embrace it.
1: So do you think that typography is manufacturing meaning?
0: No, I think typography is the expression of meaning, but you can put things, qualities into that type that enhances the meaning. You include several really
1: marvelous quotes by Marshall McLuhan in this chapter, and you also share this one. The phonetic alphabet is a unique technology. Only alphabetic cultures have ever mastered connected lineal sequences as pervasive forms of psychic and social organization. And it made me wonder if alphabets sort of tell time.
0: Well, first of all, I quote McLuhan because I wish I could have said some of that stuff.
1: Isn't it gorgeous?
0: It's just stunning. just uh, an amazing way of expressing what seems to be so simple and making it complex yet then again simple. Uh, in answer to your question, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um. Well you shared McLuhan's point of view on
1: a number of of different things you describe how when the phonetic alphabet developed during the typographic age the power to control human actions
0: increased exponentially how so once you've created an alphabet you can communicate beyond the couple of feet that you exist in you can communicate over periods of time, as you're suggesting, and place, and that is a very powerful tool. So the phonetic alphabet really did open the door to mass communication in ways that you couldn't have done if you were just grunting. Uh, I just saw that movie on Turner Classic Movies, The Year 1000 or something, and it's just these guys that look like really bad hippies grunting to one another. <laughs> and you've got to think, boy, that must have been a horrible time when Neanderthals just went, uh, 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 even if they had some expression in their voice. Type does much more than, uh.
1: But it does tell time. It really does. If you look back over the course of time and see how our alphabet has been impacted by our culture and behavior and technology, you can very, very specifically
0: see a story unfold. Well, you can see a story unfold in many different cultures because all the cultures of the world have in some form or another an alphabet. And some of those alphabets are about time because they evolve within a period of time, or they disappear because they're somehow obsolete. I'm thinking of the runic alphabet. Uh, The runic alphabet was a a major force, and it then became a mystical force, and then it symbolized some pretty horrible things during Nazi Germany, and now it barely exists.
1: Aramaic, Latin, I mean, these are are languages that... I wonder, actually, if there are certain words that just weren't even conceivable in those languages that we use now.
0: Probably. I always say e pluribus, unum.
1: (laughs) You outline how universal literacy was embraced during the 19th century in detail, how typography became a tool of authority and state that this tool of authority triggered a chain of events that changed the world.
0: In what way? Well, just having something written down that came from a source other than yourself, uh, that came from a higher power, is going to change the way you view uh, the world. And, of course, when we started seeing printed books, the world was primarily illiterate. So not only did the alphabet make a huge change it also triggered literacy, which made an even huger change in the way we perceived things and the way we accepted things and received things.
1: You pose a question in Rants and Raves that I'd like you to answer. You depict how, at one time, the poster once held sway And could motivate and inspire and indeed change the world. Do you think that a poster still has the ability to do that?
0: I think a poster still has the ability as much, if not more, than ever before. Because it's a tactile uh, object. Because it doesn't fleet on the screen. I mean, just drive down Times Square, the Great White Way, and tell me how many images really stick in your mind. And then go into uh, any store where there's a poster, The Gap, and that poster image will stick in your mind. I mean, it's not so much a poster in the abstract. It's a poster as here is an image that's not going away and that you can look at it for a while. And, you know, when I say The Gap, that's kind of trivial. You'll forget the model in The Gap. but. It may take you a longer time to forget it than to see it on an LED screen.
1: What did you think of the Women's March posters?
0: I loved them. I mean, I wrote something for the Design Observer called Bad Design Great Posters. I wouldn't, as a, a rule, support terrible design, uh, you know, but these were so ad hoc, they were so emotional, they were so spur of the moment, they were so honest and real that they played an important role in that particular moment in time. So much so that two books have already been published about those marches and particularly about the posters in those marches.
1: Do you think that if they were any less ugly, they'd be less effective?
0: It's hard to say. I mean, people respond to things differently. I think... Part of that whole aesthetic was that we were responding to the day before. This was the day after Armageddon, meaning the inauguration. We were prepared for any kind of warmth, any kind of unanimity, any kind of embrace from others. So the march itself was important to have as an act, And those posters were just part of that expression and need that we had. So if the posters were any, I don't know whether they could be any uglier, because how do we define ugly? The posters could have been more bland. And in that case, I think nobody would be talking about them now. And by bland, I mean just, you know, using standard typefaces straight off the computer without any thought behind it and just the slogan. The slogan might work, but the posters...
1: Or more manufactured.
0: Or manufactured.
1: More well-designed, I guess.
0: I mean, I remember marching in an anti-Iraq war demonstration. There were many different factions and each group had their selection of posters and they weren't all that interesting. They just basically indicated what group was marching. I remember an anti-Vietnam War march where the posters were much more vibrant and exciting in the sense that there was slogan and picture. Everything worked together in, in a kind of harmony and disharmony that inspired the marchers.
1: In a chapter titled On the Front Lines of Free Expression, you report how the massacre of 12 editors and cartoonists at the offices of Charlie Hebdo was not an isolated event, and how satire, satirists, and cartoonists have long been targets. Can you talk a little bit about some of that really, really interesting history?
0: Drawing pictures and publishing pictures has long been a... Very powerful weapon, and it was a weapon during World War One. It was a weapon during World War Two. From my memory, it was a weapon around the Vietnam era when Paul Davis did a poster for Evergreen Review that uh, showed Che Guevara as this kind of saintly character, and the offices of Evergreen Review were were bombed. bombed. Right. And um, no one was hurt, thank heavens. But, but
1: you say free expression took a hit.
0: Free expression took a hit, and uh, that's always th- the risk. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I recently did a uh, a panel uh, with uh, Adele Rodriguez and Steve Broadner on their anti-Trump caricatures. And before we started looking at their work... I threw up on the screen some pro-Trump graphics and my stomach turned, churned actually, looking at these things, thinking that there was somebody who had an artistic sensibility that was also leaning in the Trump direction.
1: Well, then let's talk about Donald Trump's branding. In the chapter titled What Else Sucks About Donald Trump, you declare that Donald Trump's typography is a lot like Trump himself, full of attitude, yet devoid of character. But, Steve, a lot has been made of the notion of Trump's win being really helped by his branding. I have a poster in my office that one of my former students, a a wonderful designer named Noah Armstrong, created, and it's two columns. One column is all of Hillary Clinton's campaign slogans, which number in, I think, the close to 100, and the one of Donald Trump's, Make America Great Again. So yet his typography might have been awful, but... As much as I hate to say it, his, his branding was pretty consistent.
0: Well, that's not unusual. I mean, he, he has been selling product and some pretty rotten products for a long time that get attention. There was a slogan that the, the Nazis had called Germany Awake. And it did more to sell the Nazi party than any of the other slogans by any of the other groups. You know, it's like, it's the real thing. Coca-Cola doesn't need anything else. It was the real thing. So, yeah, I say his branding sucks. He's president of the United States. So me saying he's his branding sucks is basically meaningless.
1: No, oh, it isn't. I don't think that's true at all. I think it actually has a lot of power for you to say it. I think that the issue of whether his typography is a lot like himself, full of attitude and, and devoid of character, is an important thing to consider, but I wonder how much the people that voted for him really care about
0: that. They couldn't care less. And When, when I s- say that it's not all that important, I'm writing from a certain perspective. What did I see when Trump was running? And, that, and when I wrote that piece, there was no way he was going to win you know i knew the hat was a good idea i knew make america great again was was a solid slogan but still there was no way that the american people would be that dumb and i was wrong but i'm still writing from the point of view of design and i look at his buildings and i look at his letterheads and i look at his logos and it's not something that i would uh, consider great work now, when you apply that to the political realities, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And I said it, I put it in the book because I liked the piece, but I don't think I'm making a grand gesture by doing so.
1: I think that in the same way we can look back, and 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 this is probably a pretty intense thing to say, but I think if we can look back over our history as a species will find that some of the most powerfully evil moments had particularly good branding.
0: Well, I think the problem with that is we tend to romanticize, as I've done myself with the Nazi branding or the fascist branding. I've written two books on the swastika and on uh, fascist, branding. And I look at it as very powerful, very strong, and at times very beautiful in this... Clarity. Well, more than clarity in terms of form. It simplified the form so that people could wrap their arms around it in such a way. I mean, the American flag, for example, is one of the greatest symbols ever designed. If you think about what other flags were being produced at the time of our flag. Uh, the British had their crosses, and that Union Jack was really quite beautiful in in itself. But the American flag had a certain simplicity, yet it was uh, symbolically powerful. There are times when things get designed that kind of reflect and enhance the moment, and there are times when things get designed that come to represent the moment that have no real virtue.
1: Well, in the chapter titled Graphic Design is Cultural Memory, you state there is something about graphic design that is timeless, even while being timely. Can you elaborate a little bit? Do you, is this what you're referring to?
0: If you ask anybody what is graphic design, I, I'd say majority of the people would say advertising. Hmm. Or they'd say logos, or they'd say branding, or their identification or something. They'd say something that represented ephemerality. And graphic design is very ephemeral. But there are also graphic designs that go beyond that ephemerality. And they mean something to you and me. They mean something that we might not even be able to define because they serve as a kind of Rorschach test. But, you know, I love working with historical materials because they say something about the time they were created and they say something about today uh, by virtue of the fact that they still exist. And I finished a book recently with Greg D'Onofrio called The Moderns. And it's all about mid-century modern graphic design from 1938 to 1970. And it's work that I always ignored in the past because... It was a lot of, about geometry, that d- geometric form took over. And for me, that was more scientific than it was emotional. But I started looking at it again through different eyes, so to speak. And I became a huge fan of the intelligence and the sense of balance and beauty that is, was brought to it and is brought to it.
1: One of the things that I love about Rants and Raves is the occasional times you reveal something about yourself. You're such a wonderful historian, and you know more than anyone I've ever met so much about all of the different disciplines of graphic design and phases of graphic design history, timelines, Um But I really do love when you share about your own growth as a historian and as a writer, as an art director, and you state how the constant influx of great new design and illustration talent and the ascent of younger art and creative directors increased the likelihood of older practitioners being overlooked. And you go on to state that decades ago, as a 24-year-old art director of the New York Times op-ed page, you were a dismisser. What does it mean to be a dismisser?
0: Old guys would come to my office who had had a history, and I would just ignore them. Why? Because I had— I, I was arrogant. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was short-sighted. I was arrogant. I had a sense of myself that was disproportionate to all reality. And I was ignorant. It doesn't even compute that this is something that you could be. (laughs) Well, it may not, because I'm so wonderful now, it may seem strange. But when you start out, there are all sorts of things you have to learn. And humility is one of them. And looking beyond the trends and looking beyond the here and now is something that comes with experience.
1: What made you change from being a dismisser? Was there a moment in time that
0: transformed you, or was it a slow evolution out of dismissivehood? There were two things that happened. One of the things I dismissed, and I'm embarrassed to even say it, was I dismissed Pushpin Studios.
1: For the listeners that can't see me at the moment, I am a Gog. My, well, my jaw has hit the floor. You and Seymour Quaz, one of the founders of Pushpin, are, are best friends.
0: We're best friends, and uh, I've written articles and I've edited books about Pushpin, so it is a little counterintuitive. But I was also very young, and Pushpin was at the top of its form. And when you're very young and somebody else is at the top of their form, you want to get to the top. And if you get to the top, you push that person or persons or thing over. That's just the way things work. It's called evolution, revolution, uh, nonsense, whatever. And one day I was having uh, lunch with uh, Ed Sorrell, who was one of the co-founders of pushpin in the very early days. And he said, you're being a jerk. And he, he said it in a very pleasant way so I could hear it. And I just took that to heart and started looking at the pushpin legacy in a different way. And time passed. Uh, knowledge came. I changed. But there were other points at which I found enemies, so to speak. Uh, I I think there's a dynamic that one has, whether it's in a creative field or a non-creative field, where you set up a straw dog, and my straw dog then was Pushpin, and then it turned to something else, and then it turned to mid-century modern, and uh, the more I learned, the more I realized I was being ridiculous. Uh, you You hear this all the time. people have conversions. you know, they're atheists and all of a sudden they're agnostics and all of a sudden they're spiritualists. And that's the way my life has been i I change because I meet people. Sometimes I meet those people because they are my straw dog, and I realize I've been uh, limited in my view and my way of accepting.
1: So sometimes a rant can become a rave or a rave can then become a rant.
0: You pulled that in nicely.
1: (laughs) That was a softball, but thank you. My last question to you is about the smiley face. Mythology has it that Forrest Gump designed the ubiquitous smiley face, but you put that mythology to rest. Forrest Gump. Yeah, have you ever seen that movie?
0: I have, but yeah, I don't remember. He designed
1: the smiley face. Oh. Um, <laughs> you put that mythology to rest in Rands and Raves and share the story about its real creator, or we, we think the real creator, Harvey Ball. He was an illustrator at an advertising agency in Massachusetts, and he was commissioned in 1963 to design some. Some public relations lingo that would placate the employees of the State Mutual Life Assurance Company of America, who were nervous about their futures because their company merged with another. And Mr. Ball drew a smiling orb that he later refined into a universal symbol of goodwill. And he was paid $45 and never took out a copyright. I learned this from your book. I mean, it's incredible the amount of knowledge one gains from one Stephen Heller tome. Um, So tell us a little bit more about some of the controversy surrounding the authorship of The Smiley Face.
0: Controversy is perhaps a strong word. You know, The Smiley Face seemed to all of a sudden come about. There are so many of these things. There was a character called the Nebbish (laughs) <laughs> that all of a sudden came about, but it was Herb Gardner who created it. He was a playwright. There are all sorts of things that we just think materialize, smiling face being one of them. But for me, the smiling face came about through the WMCA Good Guys, which you may remember. That
1: it was the a radio station. AM right?
0: radio station. And you know, their call-in was the good guys, WMCA. It wasn't in a circle, as I remember, but it was a smiling face and two eyes. The controversy, if there was one, was were they the originators or was Ball the originator? And, you know, now we call it an emoji. And there are thousands of these emojis. And we probably know who did some of them and others don't want to admit to it.
1: Well, they might want to admit to them when they're making a lot of money having made them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you can copyright an emoji, but I don't think you can.
1: According to the Harvey Ball World Smile Foundation, Mr. Ball believed that each one of us has the ability to make a positive difference in this world and any effort to improve the world, no matter how small, was worthwhile. So maybe those emojis are, are part of that effort.
0: I think anything that has a smile should be considered smiley.
1: Steve, thank you for making the world a more worthwhile place through your writing and your words. And thank you once again for being on Design Matters. It is always just a complete honor to be able to talk to you about design.
0: The honor is more mine than yours.
1: Steve Heller's latest book is Graphic Design Rants and Raves. To keep up with what Stephen Heller is thinking, reading, and writing about now, visit his blog, The Daily Heller. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you
0: again soon.